the last thing I have to tell you about is our, our blood drive is next Sunday. Uh, the, the people doing it gave us another hour slot, which gives us eight more spaces. And so the blood drive is now going to go from 1 p.m. to 6 p.m. So they gave us eight more spaces. So right now we have about 16 open spots, maybe less. Ten open, we have 10 open spots. So if you want to give your life force, this would be awesome. Now, we're actually doing this because uh, Nick Slocum's nephew, uh, Nick DeSanfres, uh, sings sometimes with us. His nephew was diagnosed with cancer last year, and he needed a lot of blood transfusions. And so we decided one of the best ways that you know, we could support and love the family in this is to then you know, donate blood. So we started doing this blood drive. So next Sunday, uh, you can pick the time you want to give it if it's open. And sign up at the Welcome Center. And if there's any left really after today, we're going to start. We're going to open it up to a couple other people who were interested. But we wanted to leave it with you guys first as Element. So if you'd like to, go sign up. There is that. All right. If you're new to Element, welcome. Uh, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables around the room. They look like this. And on one side, you're going to get this thing that gives a big idea of what we're talking about, some questions to reflect upon what we talk about today. On this side, you're going to get all the verses we cover, and there's a lot of them today, and then some announcements as well. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on More and then Events in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smartphone, and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, and everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? And this is Acts chapter 14, verse 1. And it says, Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us to be a people who understand more and more how to see the good news that has been proclaimed to us, that that we have believed, your rescue of who we are, and that we would speak of that good news in ways that people would hear and believe, that you would draw people to you by what you call your people into. And so teach us to be a people who live for your glory as you bring about such good for us as we follow and love and worship you. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so this is week six of Acts part two. Part two is covering chapter 13 through the end of the book. Acts part one did uh, chapter one through chapter 12. This is like four and a half years after we did part one. And time is going by so fast, right? It's already February. Isn't that crazy? I mean, it, it did take us six weeks to get to the second chapter of this section that we're covering, but holy cow, still going by really fast. I actually read this article in Scientific American, because I'm a weirdo like that, and it said the older you get, the faster time goes. And I'm thinking, I'm going to be dead by next week if that's true. The article also said that time passes faster when you're having fun, and I, I don't know, I've been having fun in Acts, so it seems to go by rather quickly. Maybe it goes by slow for you. It says if it's not fun, it goes by a lot slower, so if it does go by slow for you, Sorry, welcome to Element. I guess that's how it goes. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. That's where we're going to be today. I got a little bit of time to give you some history where we're at. Uh, so where we're at is what history, historians call the first missionary of journey of Paul, and I say and his buddy Barnabas. So here's the map I've shown you before. 
Over here on the right, you have this place called Antioch. Okay, this is, there's another one over here, but don't look at that yet. Just stay on the one on the right. The one on the right, Antioch. This is Antioch in Syria. Antioch in Syria is about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, and it's known as the cradle of Christianity. When persecution broke out against Christians in the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, many of the Christians fled to the city called Antioch in Syria. It's the place where Christians were first called Christians. Uh, that could have been self-imposed on the Christians themselves calling themselves that, or it could have been Romans looking at them and trying to differentiate between these Jewish people versus these Jewish people who follow this guy named Jesus as the Christ. And so it could have been either one of those. Now, this city was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, and it had upwards of half a million people in it. And Antioch will come into play a few times throughout the book of Acts. Now, over here on the other side, you have Antioch and Pisidia. Why in the world are there two Antiochs? Well, about 300 B.C., there's this guy. His name is Seleucus, and he's busy conquering the known world. He conquered from Turkey to Iran, and he set up nearly 60 different cities when he did that. So far, they have found at least 16 that he named Antioch. It's like, it's kind of hard. Where are you going to send the mail to Antioch? That doesn't help me at all. Like, where's, where's that supposed to go? And so he did this because his father's name was Antiochus, and he wanted to leave a legacy for his father, so he started naming all these cities. So maybe one day, centuries or maybe millennia later, one of these cities might still be there, and his father would still be known. Makes it horrible for everybody else. Anyway, so that first Antioch is in Syria. It's the most well-known, but it's interesting that real first sermon you see Paul preach is done in that Antioch in Poseidia. In Pisidia, it is 3,600 feet above sea level. Paul and Barnabas would have had to travel a mountainous road to get up to it to preach in that synagogue. And people say, well, why did they even go there if it wasn't well known? Uh, most people think that in Acts 13, verse 7, there's a guy named Sergius Paulus. He's one of the most powerful men in Asia Minor. And he came to hear the gospel and believed. And he most likely asked Paul and Barnabas to go to this other Antioch because he had family there. Would you go there and tell them what you have told me? And so Paul and Barnabas say, sure, you're powerful. We'll go. This will be great. So they go there. Now, what's interesting about this is that Poseidon Antioch historically is the first city to have an entirely Gentile Christian community in it. So where we go today, I'm going to spend next week is a look at kind of the persecution that followed Paul in these places that he went into and then how we can begin to deal with that because the early believers went through it and then sometimes in our lives when we speak the gospel in ways into our culture they understand there will be some persecution that comes with it. This all takes place in a historical context so I wanted you to have that before we go where we go. So Acts 14 verse 1. Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a Great number of both Jews and Greeks believe. Spoke in such a way means they're understanding the culture enough to speak the gospel where they are. What happened in the last chapter, Paul goes into that Poseidon Antioch and he speaks the gospel in such a way that the people get it. He speaks into their culture. And the people get really, really excited. But there are some other Jewish people who became jealous and they were afraid of what was happening because all these people are going to start to flood their synagogue and change how they did things and they didn't really like like that. So what they do is they stir up a bunch of people in the town to run Paul and Barnabas out of town. And what Paul and Barnabas do is they say, okay, we're not going to give up. 
We're going to keep preaching the gospel, but we'll go somewhere else. Now, this is so different than a lot of people who follow Jesus today. Many times if we go in and say, and we're like, God wants me to tell this person about Jesus, and you start to do it, and it doesn't go well, we're like, why is this so hard, God? I don't know if that's how you do it. That's apparently I pray. Otherwise, it's so hard, God. And we get so mad at God. If I'm telling somebody about you, shouldn't it be easy? Shouldn't you pave the road to make it really smooth and, and easy? Many times we would give up when it got hard. Paul and Barnabas, they go outside of town. They knock the dust off their shoes to say, I'm not going to let this follow me. And they move on to another place and keep talking about the gospel. They move on to a city called Iconium. Here's a picture where that is. In this city called Iconium, some other stuff is going to happen, but Iconium is about 80 miles from Antioch. And maybe in the midst of this, God gives them a nice little pleasurable journey going to this place, because even travel websites today will say this when you go to these two places. You follow the famous Via Sebasti through rolling countrysides. You will pass the snow-capped peaks of the Sultan Dag. Sounds really nice, right? And then what you do is you come to a plateau surrounded by these fertile plains and forests, and that's Iconium. Iconium, modern day, is called Konya. It's an ancient city that claims to be older than Damascus itself. Uh, There is no large Roman garrisons there at this time, so it remains very Greek in attitude. It's even ruled by these people called the Demos, and that is the city citizens and not Rome itself. So they held themselves apart because they got to govern themselves, and it gave them a sense of independence in that. So Paul speaks the gospel there. This starts to happen. Chapter 14, verse 2. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So what they do? They remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So trouble comes again. What do they do? They stay and continue to preach the gospel. What the word is for what people do to the people who are believing is this word called poison their minds, poison the minds of those around them. This wording has the idea in Greek that these people were afflicted or maltreated in some way. Could be verbal abuse, uh, could be emotional abuse, could be uh, physical abuse. It's to show the difference of what the freedom of the gospel brings into people's lives, this hope and grace, versus the oppression that other people are using to keep God's good news at bay. And what does Paul do? They stayed for a long time and keep speaking boldly about the good news, the freedom that God wants to bring to all people. Now, Paul and Barnabas, they would leave when trouble was likely foreshadowing their death, but they didn't run at the first sign of trouble. Eventually today, where I want to take you is what do we do in the face of opposition in our own lives? When something comes against us, when we're trying to talk about the good news of the gospel, what do we do with that? And I want you to see that Paul is someone who didn't give up when things simply got hard. I think God's people need to be a little bit spunky, right? Like a little bit of Ugh, like not rebellious, but have a little rebellious streak in his little, oh, you know, to go. There's this story about a guy named John Wesley. I don't know if you ever heard of him. Uh, he, he was a preacher, you know, a couple hundred years ago. And he is, he's going around to this village. And as he's going into this village, a bully heard that he was coming, didn't like Wesley at all. So he takes his carriage outside, because it's a horse and buggy time, no cars, take his carriage outside the city down this one lane road and he parked it across the road like this and when he saw John Wesley come he just stood there like you're not going to get by me so John Wesley you know his little cart and horse thing I don't know one horsepower they he gets up and he and he goes and he sees the guy and he goes around him into the ditch into the muck and dirt and kind of pulls his horse around and gets around the guy and goes back into town as he does this the bully looks at him and says I never pull out for fools meaning I never get out of the way of somebody that's foolish John Wesley looks at him and he goes that's okay I always do 
get out of the way of fools, right? And goes into town. Now, you got to John Wesley's probably like 5'2", like little dude, so he's got, got a lot of guts there. The Apostle Paul writes this, 2 Corinthians 4, 8, and 9. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. 2 Corinthians is written to a church where Paul's apostolic authority and his credentials are starting to be questioned. Uh, every, when he started to preach, like, oh, you can't listen to Paul. He has these terrible things that are happening to him in his life. And 2 Corinthians kind of goes and it begins to address that. You, res, you see him respond to people who say you can't trust Paul because God's not with him because he has all these hardships that have come into his life, all these tragedies and all these difficulties. And so in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul just takes it head on and he addresses that thing because he knows people are talking about it. And Paul says, yeah, I've been imprisoned. I have been flogged five Times I've been flogged. Three times I've been beaten with rods. He says, once I was stoned. Not like in California. This is like when they throw rocks at you till you die. Okay? We'll actually talk about that next week. Uh, about throwing rocks at you till you die. Not about... Anyway. Uh, three times shipwrecked. I spent a day and a night in the open sea. I've been constantly in danger from rivers, from robbers, from my own countrymen, from Gentiles. I have known hunger and thirst. I have been cold and naked. Acts 13 and 14 is the beginning of that happening to him. Eventually, I think Paul could have been thrown out of more cities than you and I will ever visit in our lives. So in the minds of the people in the city that are being poisoned, this is most likely something that's being said to them. How could God be with that man when he was just thrown out of Antioch. If he was speaking such good news of what God is doing, why did they run him out? Surely when God's with you, God protects you. Surely when God is with you, you prosper. The Mediterranean Sea was a sea that all of those people in that city were probably on at some point. And yet Paul had been shipwrecked three times. <laughs> three times. Well, I've never been shipwrecked, so I'm a, God must be more with me than with that, that Paul guy. And this still gets said today in a lot of circles. If God is with you, God blesses you. Bad things don't happen to you because God's there to give you everything you want and need. Because we have to understand when people say things like this, you must look to the life of Jesus. Jesus, he was despised, rejected, crucified. And yet God the Father, when Jesus is baptized, says over him, this is my son, with him I am well pleased. So what it means is there is hard times that come into our lives. And it doesn't mean that God isn't with us. It means that God's going to walk through us in those things because it grows us and reaches other people at the same time. So how does Paul respond to this? Acts 14, verse 4. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, some, some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers, that would be the demos, to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So Paul and Barnabas preach until it's prudent to leave, but they never stop no matter how hard it becomes they just go somewhere else and keep going what this means is when you read this historically is that paul and barnabas's enemies divided the demos the ruling people in the city and if roman rule would have been stronger in the city they never would have tried to kill them at all but because it wasn't there they could do this try to stone god's missionaries paul and barnabas were brave but they're not foolish they had common sense Uh, kent hughes writes this they were born again not born yesterday That's good, right? God can, I think, and will protect us, but he calls us to also use our common sense. So now Paul and Barnabas have been booted out of two different cities back back to back. It's going to happen again in different places where he goes. They might have felt a little discouraged, but they still served Jesus in the midst of it because they knew that God's good news is what people needed to hear. I think Paul is an optimist. 
And he keeps seeing what God can and would do in people's lives when they heard of the good news. One preacher describes an optimist like this. It's an 85-year-old man. He marries a 35-year-old woman and moves into a 12-room house next to an elementary school. (laughs) Philippians 4, 12, and 13, Paul says this. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Who strengthens him? Christ, Jesus, not himself. This means that Paul, through all of these things, has a focus upon the gospel of God's rescue of him. Jesus' life, death, resurrection, taking away our sin that separates us from God and us from one another and brings us to himself. That's what he focuses on. That's what gives him strength. They will now move 26 miles out into the wilds to this place called Lystra where things get worse and funnier, and we'll talk about that next week. But I want to go with this idea of opposition to the gospel and the good news. Because when you start to speak of the gospel into the cultural context where you are, like we talked last week, there will many times be opposition to it. And so what do you do? Because a lot of people first ask, well, why would anybody oppose the good news? Why would anybody like, oh, I don't want to hear good news? Well, in one sense, we all oppose good news that we don't like. It is political season. It's 2020, presidential elections coming up, and we all do this in politics. No matter if someone on the other side of the political aisle from us does something good, we discount it. It could be taxes or job numbers or you know national, whatever it is, we find a way to discredit what they're doing. It's like we can't say good anything good about anybody else. And if we do, all the people on our side get on our cases for saying anything nice about somebody else. It's a terrible way to have discourse. It really is. When Paul comes speaking of true freedom and grace from God's hand, the reaction is not joy. It is fear from these people of losing what little power they might actually have in the city of Iconium. No one seems to be rejoicing that the lost are being saved except for the lost who are being saved. And I think we have a tendency to look at people in the Bible like this who oppose the gospel and say, oh, we would never respond like that. And yet I think a lot of times that we do. Many times in our culture today when Christians feel like they're about to lose their position of security or influence or power, they digress into outrage and fear and confusion and anger and withdrawal. We stop remembering that where our strength comes from is what Christ has done to rescue us. That's where we should sit in our lives because that is where we understand everything else that comes into our lives. It's from that place, and yet we cease to remember that. And I would submit to you that many of the ways Christians respond to opposition today is far from ideal, far from it. And as I said, Paul deals with this in 2 Corinthians. Peter will talk about this in the book of 1 Peter. And it's interesting because it seems that anyone who really wants to talk about the gospel and love and serve Jesus comes to a place where there is opposition to what they want to speak and be about in their lives. Anyone who loves Jesus many times will come to a place where there is opposition. And I love Peter because when Peter faces opposition, he doesn't always respond well. He stands there when Jesus is going to get arrested. and He's like, I'll take care of this. Whips out a sword, chops some dude's ear off. And I want to be all, yeah, I mean, no, 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 Peter, don't. Do, right? And Jesus grabs the ear, sticks it back on the guy's ear, put your sword away. He figures it all out. But I, I appreciate that Peter is a guy who many times reacts out of fear or, or pulls back or jumps out in anger because Jesus comes and Jesus restores him. 
And he keeps moving him to understand who he is. And he begins to step out boldly with the gospel in courage. This is what you see in that whole first part of the book of Acts we went through. It's this pattern. And I think it took Peter years to learn. But walking with Jesus, the Holy Spirit inside of him, he does learn. And, and he writes this book called First Peter. Part of First Peter actually helps people dealing with opposition and what you do in the midst of it. How do people as Christians react to opposition? What are we supposed to do? And now when I say as a Christian, I don't mean as an adjective. How do we really live in our lives this way? And so I was looking and reading a bunch of stuff, and I came across these 10 points that a guy named David Gunderson put out. And I put those in your notes. They're actually on this side right here, right there. And I'm going to walk through those with you right now, hopefully quickly, but we'll see where this goes. Uh, I want this to be very practical for you in how we walk through this. So first off, when there is opposition, number one, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. It's going to happen. Jesus said this, Matthew 5, 11, and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We should never be shocked if someone responds poorly to the message of the gospel. Because in our world, almost no one really wants to follow Jesus. Even people who claim to be Christians, we don't really want to follow Jesus. Because we're like Americans, right? It's like we're independent. We want to do what we want to do. The world needs to bow to us. Oh, you know, We don't want to bow to Jesus. And when a message is preached about surrendering all of our lives to him, it doesn't always go well. People will say things like, oh, well, God's a crutch. And when people say that to me, I'm like, you don't understand Jesus. Because if he's a crutch, I'm doing it wrong, right? He's like my wheelchair. He is, he's my hammock. He's, he's everything. If I'm just leaning on him, that's not how I'm supposed to live. Like a crutch is, it's not even like that. And they're like, I don't understand that. Like, I know you know this. Why you said a crutch? So, uh, verse, 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. He's saying, it's not new. It's not strange. Welcome to your new normal. Woohoo! <laughs> That's how it's supposed to go. Paul promises, 2 Timothy 3.12. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We don't put that on the brochure, right? Want to follow Jesus? Persecution. Here. Yay! We, we don't do that at all. We shouldn't be surprised if opposition comes. But for some reason, we always are. You know who's not surprised? Jesus and Paul and Peter. So when it happens, second thing, calm your outrage. Slow your roll. Pump your brakes. Many times what marks an immature people is that we react and we don't think through what's actually happening. 1 Peter 3.14, he says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. I don't know if you've ever met a Christian who is always on the verge of outrage. If you don't, it's probably you. You're welcome. Okay? This could be social justice. It could be someone who's just always wound so tight it doesn't make sense. But a constantly outraged Christian is a sad sight. You say hi to somebody. What do you mean by that? Uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't know where to go with this. We don't respond to opposition with a toxic blend of fear and anger. What we do is remember the grace that we have received as a people. And so we respond in kind what people do. We respond with grace. Gunderson writes this. The words outrage and courage both have the word rage in them, yet they're totally different attitudes. And that is so, so true. We need less reactionary outrage and more courageous love. Third thing, we repent when needed. 
Because there are times when we will not respond appropriately, when we will say the wrong things, we will overreact, we will do the wrong thing, but we should never be afraid to apologize, even if someone else never does. 1 Peter 4.15, that let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Don't suffer for doing the wrong thing. This means sometimes our message when we speak it is not heard because Christians aren't respected because we're not being respectable. And so sometimes when that label of hypocrite gets thrown around, don't blame somebody else. You've got to look at it. Is it actually true? Look at what people are actually saying. Because many times your opponents are going to see your failures more than you do. And if you are a racist, you need to repent. If you hate somebody because of a lifestyle choice, you need to repent. If you are rude and gossipy and arrogant at work, you can't get all blustery and claim persecution. If a coworker calls you on something, look and see if it's true. And then own it and repent. And hopefully the world will appreciate the rare examples of humility that God's people actually live in. Because our worth is not determined by other people and what they think. It's determined by what God has said about us so we can live in strength and hope and grace. Number four, we keep loving each other. You keep loving each other. Sometimes people will call you on some stuff. You keep loving each other. When things get difficult in community, including communities of believers, people can turn on each other. Later, what you'll see is Paul and Barnabas have a little tiff between them, and they split ways. Uh, 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. There's a tendency, even within the church itself, to forget the good news of the gospel and how we have been rescued and saved. So we need to guard against that temptation, especially when opposition heats up. There's this great quote, and it says, if our battle isn't against flesh and blood, then our battle certainly should never be against one another. Which goes to my number five, which is love your enemies. Love your, and I know it sounds so cliche in churches to say, that. oh, love your enemies. We don't want to love our enemies. Loving our enemies is hard. It isn't a TV show where half of it you're like hate somebody, and then five minutes after that you're like, oh, we're all hugs and kisses. It's so good. That's not how life works. Life is complicated. But what we have to understand in loving our enemies is we have to see what the enemy of people is, and it's sin. Sin is destroying our world. It destroys relationships. It pulls people away from who we were called to be. And so we must understand that, that Jesus wants to save us and them. It's Jesus for all of us. 1 Peter 3, 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. It's the gospel for all, grace and truth for everybody. And this is why Paul does what he does. It's why Paul says what he says. It's why he doesn't run when things first get hard. He only runs when they're ready to kill him. The best way to imitate Jesus is to treat people with love even when they wrong you. That doesn't mean you can't call them on something when they're doing something mean or rude or dumb. You can call them on that, but we do it in love. And we love our enemies, individual or collective, and we treat other people like Jesus has first treated us. Number six, we trust God and do good because the only way we do good in this world is by first trusting God himself. If it feels like everything is against you, you still trust God and do good because we entrust ourselves to Him. 1 Peter 4.19 Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. 1 Peter 2.15 For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. We keep loving people who come into our path. The worst way to silence skeptics or critics is trying to yell louder. No one ever wins a flame war online or on Facebook. Look at all these 
dumb political conversations on Facebook going, man, you guys just don't get it. This is not going to go well for anybody. No one, everybody regrets it later. No one feels like they won at the time. See, what we got to do is trust God and begin to do what's right. God's going to take care of us. And so evangelism means difficult conversations, but we never have to be difficult people. Number seven, share your hope. We start talking about what we know. What do people need? Reconciliation to who Jesus is. And many times it's about what God has done. It's not always that we have all the answers, but we know what he has done for us. And you will see Paul on multiple occasions go back to the place where he talks about how God rescued and saved him. Paul did understand a lot of different cultures and places, but he didn't know everything. 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. The hope that is in you. The hope that is in you. Not the fear. The hope that is in you. That's something we get to talk about. In a world like ours, if your life is marked by grace and love and integrity and hospitality, people are going to notice and say, what's wrong with you? That's weird. What's different about your life? And it's in those places we develop what we call gospel fluency. We get to talk about what Jesus has done to change us and rescue us and help us see the world differently. We're able to speak of God's hope no matter where we are, that he has done these things in us, and we speak of it with joy. So we're prepared to share that hope But it comes in this place. That's why it's like number seven. After we understand that what the gospel is and these things are going to happen to us and we get to this place now. Number eight, do this. Be respectful. Be respectful. Uh, The end of 1 Peter 3.15 says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. If you are a rude evangelist, you are a bad evangelist. Okay? Uh, maybe the John Wesley story was the wrong one to tell you because that, wasn't, that was kind of rude in there. But sometimes we like to hear that and we're like, oh, yeah, get them. I do think there's a time to share. Like there probably was a spot where he could have confronted and talked to this bully, but we never lash out. As we share Jesus with people, always be respectful. We can try to avoid verbal fights that don't go anywhere. What we do is we learn to be strong and yet gentle at the same time. Number nine in this, at every other service, I was like, number nine, like I can't count with my fingers. Number nine, remember your Christian family. And this is one of the things that struck me about Gunderson's article, because I tend to forget this myself. I tend to think when I go through something hard, it's just me. I got to press on. I got to figure it out by myself. First Peter 5, 9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. It's sad that sometimes Christians feel like they have to go through things alone. Like you're the Incredible Hulk and you are doomed to walk the earth by yourself. And sometimes we do it to ourselves. Like, oh, I'm going through this. I don't want people to know. Or I must share the gospel the wrong way and someone reacted the wrong way. Don't anybody know that I'm dumb like that? We don't want people to know our struggles. But we are designed to be a people to live in community with each other so people do know what we're going through. We need to understand that we're not the first ones to experience it. We're not the last ones to experience it. And other people are experiencing it as well. Peter suffered like Paul. Every one of the apostles were martyred with the exception of John. But that wasn't for lack of trying. They tried to kill him a bunch of times. It just didn't stick, right? We should remember with prayer and sympathy and great respect the countless others who endure so many things around us as well. To come together as a family, to walk with one another. And even when we face legitimate challenges to our faith, we are a people not only loved by God, but we are also in the company of other people who love him as well that will walk with us through those things. And number 10, the last one is this. Remember the gospel that we speak of. Remember the gospel that we speak of. Many times we have a tendency to forget that God's good news is not just for everybody else, it's also for us. 
1 Peter 5.10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. See, the good news is that our own rescue and our own salvation is based upon what God has done Himself. It doesn't mean we never mess up if we feel threatened. It doesn't mean we always speak the gospel exactly how everybody understands it. It's our salvation is based upon what God did for us. And that's why we can live in great faith and hope and joy because it's what God himself did. No matter what situation you find yourself in, 1 Peter 1.3, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? This is what we set our hope upon. What Jesus has done. And that in turn changes how we interact with the world around us because our focus is different. Our focus is not upon someone offending us. Our focus is not upon, oh, will they oppose me in this good news of the gospel. Our focus is not on those things. Our focus is on what Jesus himself has done. And that begins to change us and how we see the world and how we interact with oppression and opposition in a way that we can still live in great hope and joy because our God is good and that's where our hope is set not on ourselves upon him and this is one of the reasons every week we come to this place of communion it's another way for us to be able to remind one another what God did to rescue us. That's why you break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It represents his blood that was shed for you and me. Because God did all that he could to bring us back into relationship with himself again. He takes away our sin, what stood between us and him, and us and one another. By what he himself did. That's what we remember here. That our God rescued and saved us. Our worth and value comes from what he has spoken over us in his love, in his grace. And that means we can interact with the world in a way we don't have to freak out all the time. Because we can trust who he is and what he has done. So the band's going to come up. As they do, I'm going to invite you to take communion. If you, would need, if you need prayer this morning, there'll be some deacons and elders in the back. If you're in a place today in your life where maybe you have some oppression because you tried to share the gospel with somebody else, somebody has opposed you in that, and you don't know what to do, they would love to pray with you about that. If you don't have anybody in your life you've ever shared the gospel with and you want to kind of maybe pray about doing it, they would love to pray with you about that. If you're going through something in your life right now and you feel like you are all alone in that, that you don't understand this great body of Christ that surrounds you, they would love to pray with you about that. It is understanding that our God rescues us where we are, places us into his family with one another. And so wherever we go and wherever we come into contact, whatever comes against us in our lives, It is something that God will use to grow us and help us to worship him more, bring all things to his glory, because he himself is good. And he is our rescuer. And he is the one who determines our value and our worth. And so we can be a people who step out in the midst of opposition, being a people full of grace and hope and life and truth. Because in the end, it is the gospel that matters. And that is where our hope is set. And I would encourage you as a people to be a people whose hope is set upon the good news of God's rescue of you. Because that, again, is what changes us.
Uh, there's offering boxes next to every door. We give because God gave so much to us, giving simply part of that worship. We don't pass a plate. It's a response to what he's done. There's some snacks outside. Grab some sermon notes. Uh, get together with some people this week. Maybe talk about some of those things. You know, Where have you felt someone pushing back against the good news of the gospel in your life? Where do you need someone to walk with you throughout different parts of your life right now? Where do you feel alone? You know, where, where are the places where God is calling you to speak the gospel but maybe you're afraid to do it? And so maybe you can come alongside one another and encourage each other to begin to live in those ways where we just speak graciously of the good news that we have first received. Because God calls us to do that. Not, not out of fear, but out of just great hope of our own rescue that we get to speak of. Because our God is so wonderful and gracious and saving us. And he is the hope that our world needs. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would take us as a people and remind us of the great grace that we have first already received, of your love for us, the strength of your indwelling spirit that you have given to us so that we would remember the good news of your great rescue, that our lives would become fluent in how we speak about that good news, how we speak about the gospel, that it would be with our words, be with our actions, be with everything that we do so that every bit of our lives begins to become worship of who you are. The meals we enjoy, the laughter we share, the struggles we go through would all be ways that we get to proclaim your good news as your ambassadors to this world. Move us to be a people who trust you enough to understand our lives by what you have said over us. And that would give us such great confidence to speak about who you are in practical ways in the culture in which we reside. Lifting up you first and foremost above all things. That our reactionary fear to things that are taking place in our country that we like or don't like, whatever it is, would be calmed by our understanding of your great love for us. And we'd be moved to live out in this great joy with you as the center of our hope because you are good. Teach us to begin to love you as you first loved us and to have that great confidence, just that great confidence that the God of the entire universe cares about us and has sent us to speak of the great rescue that we have known. Teach us to be your people who love those around us because you have first loved us. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.